pleasure to be back up here again and uh, preaching the word with you again. Uh, and I, I want to start off with a, I think, rudimentary truth. But just in case you don't know, you are not an animal. Right? Look around, the people next to you, people to your left, people to your right. They are people. They are human beings. They are men and women. Now, I didn't know Don was going to start with Genesis 1. I, I guess I should have because light, right? It makes sense, and that's my topic today. But nevertheless, as we continue on in that Genesis narrative, the, the height of God's creation is when he creates mankind, human beings, because he does something unique with the human beings as opposed to the rest of creation, and that is that they have the image of God, or we have the image of God. And this is a fascinating thing to stop and ponder what that really sort of can mean, that of all creation, or out of all of creation, mankind has something unique in that we are made in the image of God. And because of this reality, it, it sort of sets things apart. I mean, for example, the lion doesn't ever stop to ponder or question why the lion wanders the savanna. Right? They don't ever stop and go, wait, why am I here? Not a question that ever pops into the mind of a lion. Just like the uh, busy bee, the honeybee, never stops to wonder and ponder why it must pollinate and go to all these plants day after day after day and back to the hive. It never wonders why it's doing what it's doing. It does its job diligently. And just like the eagle-eyed soaring through the skies, it never stops and goes, what is the meaning of all of this? Right? Animals don't do that, yet from the very foundations of human creation, especially after Adam and Eve took of the fruit and fell, man has always asked these types of questions. Man has always stopped to ponder the big philosophical and theological questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Who is God, potentially? These type of questions that mankind literally has spent eons and different philosophers and different religions have tried to attempt to answer these questions. So in my last sermon a couple weeks ago, we clearly address that it is the Apostle John who is writing this letter that we will continue to look through today. And he's addressing it primarily to churches in the Asia Minor region, or what we would call Turkey today. And unlike these other philosophies, or unlike these other religions, we also unpacked that this is truth. And again, not just some sort of mystical truth that someone had to sit and ponder and sort of stir up in their own uh, attempts to connect with, with whatever is out there. Rather, we know that this is because God came and dwelt among us, and in particular dwelt among and interacted with John, and it's him sharing what that did for him. And so, John wastes no time getting into expanding upon what he is going after because Jesus was a real man born of a virgin and would die and would raise again. And so he challenges, or excuse me, tackles this first and one of the most important questions that we can ask. Who is 
God. So if you are able, will you please rise for the reading of God's word? And we are in 1 John chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 7 this morning. This is God's word. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So I have titled today's message, Fellowship with the Light. Because that's going to be my main focus as we get into this, but just so you know where I'm going and to to unpack this idea, we need to address five key points. First, God is light. Text said that. We'll look at that. What it means to have fellowship with the light would be our second point. Number three, what does it mean to walk in darkness? And four, the converse of that, what does it mean to walk in the light? And then lastly, we will talk about the cleansing blood of Jesus. So those will be our five points we will get into. But we need to start, obviously, at the beginning. And so let's go ahead and back at verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5. And it says this, This is the message which we have heard and proclaimed to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Now when you hear this, I'm assuming because you are in America and you've probably watched a movie or read a book or had some sort of entertainment of some sort of received thing, and it's very popular trope in our uh, pop culture today that good guys wear light, bad guys wear dark, right? And so we can just right off the bat just know that immediate, right, stereotypical trope in our mind of, oh yeah, if I'm watching a movie and some cowboy, right, in a western walks in and he's wearing the dark garments, oh, did my slides not work? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, okay, sorry. So, okay. So, anyways, um, so he walks in with all the dark. You know, that's the bad guy, with almost with no question in your mind, right? Or, right? We can look at the classic Star Wars films: Darth Vader, classic villain, all dark, right? Or Luke Skywalker, at least in the first ones, right? We can talk about Jedi another time, but he comes in always wearing lighter clothes, lighter clothing, right? And so, anyways, that's our sort of stereotypical mindset when we we look at that. Nevertheless, that's not exactly what John is getting at. While there might be some hints at that, there's a much deeper and more significant understanding as we look at that. And so if we turn our attention back to the Psalms, we'll see many images of light and darkness throughout the Psalms, but one in particular, Psalm 37 says this, and this is in verse 5 and 6. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. Now, notice what the psalmist here is attaching to light. He's attaching the righteousness of one person or of someone's action, right? Righteous behavior is light, Right? To do good, to do right, to do what is holy is light, the righteousness that we can do. But then also notice he continues that metaphor. When is the highest justice? 
when the sun is highest in the sky, when it's the brightest time of day. So once again, we can see that this connection between light and righteousness is very strong, very powerful, very uh, in your face here in the Psalms. And so one of our definitions that we have to look at when we talk about what it means to be light is it means that one is righteous. One behaves oneself as though he is righteous. And again, our New Testament is no different. We see this similar point made in Matthew. Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so, they may see, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So once again, they will see your light, or you will shine your light. They will see your good deeds, your righteous behavior, and then they will give glory to God. So once again, we see this idea, righteousness equals the light, or the light equals righteousness. To be in the light means to be righteous. Now, what's important here is that we aren't talking about man's righteousness. These passages I looked about talked about man's righteousness. But if God is going to be called light, we have to then understand who God is, and we know God is perfect. So we have righteousness. We can walk righteously. We can do righteous acts, but it is in a failed comparison to that of God. His righteousness is perfect. His righteousness is ultimate. And this is drawn out in the second half of the passage. If we go back to our first John passage, we see the second part, in him is no darkness at all. There's none, not a drop, not a hint, not even a, a, the smallest insignificant amount you could consider. So again, think about the contrast then. If we're going to say that God is righteous, it is a perfect Righteousness. It's a supreme righteousness. It's a righteousness that has no comparison. Amen. Now, John will play with this in his gospel in chapter 3. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 19, so John chapter 3, verse 19, <clears throat> says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest uh, his works be exposed. So once again, in man's righteousness, it's flawed. There is darkness, but again, we see that darkness and light are obviously opposites. This is not something we are unfamiliar with. Obviously, if we turned off the lights, we'd be in dark. It'd be a no-brainer. And, but that's the reality that John is trying to draw out here, that God is perfect, holy, righteous. And in him there is no darkness. In him there's no in righteousness or unrighteousness, excuse me. So there's our First points, God is light, light is righteous, and God is purely 
righteous. So if we continue on, back to John, we will see in verse 6 now. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. So let's look at the first part, because it says, if we say we have fellowship with him. So this is a hypothetical statement. If, if I say, if I make the claim, if I come to you and say, hey, I have fellowship with the light or with God, then would be the logical next step. But this is the point of what he's saying is that, what does it mean then that if someone's going to come and say, what does it mean to have fellowship? If I say I have fellowship with God, what is this? Now, unfortunately, in our, our modern Christian world and, and so many churches around this country and, and the West in particular, fellowship has sort of lost its, its true weight. Now, recently, um, our church went through um, some home fellowship, and that was great. I, I love that study. Um, I think they still have the book if you're interested, but nevertheless, oftentimes in, in most modern evangelical churches, when you hear fellowship, they just think it just means hanging out with the church, right? Just going out, hanging out, having a good time. Maybe it's sitting around a um, coffee table, uh, enjoying some coffee, and, and talking about the, the latest Giants game. Um, sure. Um, some might claim, you know, maybe it's just you know, hanging out and doing whatever, playing board games, hanging out, just shooting the breeze, kind of a, a situation. While there's a, a, a particular part of that, that that doesn't has its place, the word fellowship is much richer in the Greek. It's much more robust. There's much more depth to it. There's, there's a, so much more that we need to unpack. So to summarize it, basically, fellowship is a shared life. It's a life that's interconnected. Where the person you're fellowshipping with, the person that you have fellowship, knows you, and you know them. You can't mask your sin when you're with this person. You can't really sort of just put on the facade or, or the, the, hey, yeah, everything's great, you know, I'm, I'm so good vibe, right, that so many of us can sort of get by with some, so many people. There's no way that we can sort of hide around this reality. They know your shortcomings. In other words, fellowship is intimacy. Now again, we in the West sometimes misconstrue that word and, and think intimacy has to only do with you know, the marriage relation. But again, intimacy is just again a depth where we know and we interact and again we are open and honest and vulnerable and true with people. And so fellowship is intimate. Therefore, if we claim to know God this way, that is no passing statement. I mean, think about that. I know God. I have fellowship with God. I know God intimately. Think of that claim now that John is saying here. Not like, oh yeah, I know God, I sometimes hang out with him and sort of talk about the weather and whatever sports team I like, right? That'd be one thing. But no, I know God so well that I'm just open and vulnerable and honest and transparent and he and I know each other in that way. But so, to help us sort of understand maybe what that looks like, let us consider some of the more intimate relationships that we probably know more in our own experience. And that would be that of 
either the relationship between a parent and a child or between spouses. And I, and again, it's almost like God knows what he's doing because he, I know, right? You guys, good, good, you guys got the joke. Good, okay, good. So he, God, in his word to us, even uses those metaphors to us. In Ephesians 5, right, we are called uh, children, excuse me, not, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, um, we are adopted children. God adopts us into his family. So once again, there's that intimate connection. We are adopted children. And then also in Revelation 21, he says that he's preparing for his bride, us. So you, the church, us, the church, we are one metaphor, the family of God, the children of God brought in, again, knowing God in this intimate way, but also knowing God as the husband and we are the bride of Christ and knowing God in that intimate way. So this fellowship is this deep, rich intimacy. Now, if you want to know something about me and like the truth of it, go talk to my wife or my son because they will know. There's no getting around it. They are there when I wake up. They're there when I go to sleep. They've seen me at my highest highs, my greatest achievements. They've also seen me when I've just missed the mark completely and I am just a bum of a human being. They've seen that. They have that intimacy. Now again, that is the kind of depth that fellowship really ought to be. And so again, it's not this passive notion of just sort of hanging out and shooting the breeze. But again, this this intimacy, this coming together, this really knowing one another of having fellowship. And so that is how our fellowship with God ought to look. Not just a casual, yeah, occasionally glance at the word and shoot off short little prayers. or whatever, But again, to really know God, to dive into his word, to really spend time in prayer, to really know him well and want to know him. Because that, that's the thing that marvels me after nearly 15 years of marriage, my wife still wants to hang out with me. She still wants to know me more. So again, consider that. That is the kind of intimacy we are talking about when we have fellowship with God. Fellowship with the light. So, let's move on to the second part of that passage. If we claim we have that fellowship, right? That's the first part, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while... With him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So there is the opposite of what potentially is the claim or the attack that John is addressing here. We've already noted that God has no darkness in him whatsoever. Again, we've already mentioned that these are completely opposite and polarizing ideas. So that it would make sense then if I'm going to claim to have that intimacy, that fellowship with the light, how could I then walk in darkness? Right, it makes sense. You cannot, you would be hypocritical. But to walk, in this sense, is not just, again, a passive, like, oh, I'm just walking to the store or I'm walking over to say hello to you, right? Nothing like that. To walk means to live, how one carries themselves. So a better way that I like to think of walking in the darkness is not just simply, again, sort of occasionally or walking and doing something in unrighteousness, but rather a practitioner of darkness. 
And I think that phrase carries a little bit more of the idea because this is someone who resides in the darkness. This is someone who habitually practices darkness. Now, we may be tempted to jump right to the extremes of history. Right? I'm sure some of you already jumped it. When I say the practitioner of darkness, that's a, that sounds weighty, right? That sounds nasty. That sounds like the extremes of vile men who maybe murdered millions or thousands of people in the name of genocide or totalitarianism. Right? And we immediately are filled with our minds of whoever that, those images of, that we've studied in history might be. However, someone can walk in darkness and be what many people might even call a good person. Someone who is a practitioner of darkness might, again, look like a nice guy on the outside. But this notion of walking in the darkness is a denial of knowing God, a denial of accepting God and his lordship. To walk in the darkness means to reject all of the righteousness that is of God. So while they might do good deeds, they might do helpful things, they might again do what the society deems as good and worthy and upright, they don't do it out of knowing the light. They have no fellowship with the light. They don't do it because they're they know God. They do it rather maybe because it makes them feel good, makes them feel happy, or maybe they just think it's the right thing to do, so they just sort of go around doing it because eh, this is what I should do. But again, at the, at the heart level, they're just in it for themselves. They have become the Lord of their own life. They have no intimacy with God. However, as we looked in our, our John 3 passage, there are some who are these practitioners of darkness, these people who walk in the dark, and they are obsessed, and they love the darkness, and they will gladly proclaim wickedness and unrighteousness and just be all about it and all consumed with it. And I'm sure we can think of examples in our head there. So therefore, because of all this, John's statement is so clear. If we say we have fellowship in him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. And that could not be any more clear. So moving on. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So once again... We start off here, but if we walk in the light, the opposite of walking in darkness, the opposite of being a practitioner of darkness, an opposite of being someone who is habitually in the darkness, habitually in sin, habitually in wickedness. This is walking with God, to seek out his righteousness, to know him. to know him, and to be known by God, to seek out his righteousness, for he is our Lord. Christ is Lord. Not because we want to earn favor, not because 
we think we need to do something right to be able to then walk with him. No, rather we do it because we have the intimacy with God and we understand what he has done for us. See, the love of God becomes our motivation for wanting to walk in this way. We understand that he has saved, he has redeemed, he has loved. And so we do the same. Why would we, well, better question, why would I want to forgive someone who's wronged me? Because I know that I've wronged God and he's forgiven me. I, I mean, again, think of all the times you've been wronged by someone in various circumstances and cases, but we let go of those as Christians because we know, man, I've, I've sinned before God. I've disappointed God. I've rejected God, and yet here he is saving and redeeming me. It would be hypocritical. It would be contrary to his very nature. However, we have to be careful not to think that this walking in the light means perfection. Right? We've already addressed how we are sinners. We can't walk this light perfectly. But, again, like our term practitioner of uh, darkness can do good things, the person who walks in light is a practitioner of righteousness. Someone who practices righteousness, who tends towards righteousness, one who is growing in righteousness, one who, yes, still sins, but has the desire of their heart to want to follow Christ who longs to please God, to do what is righteous. And so that is what we have to understand with walking in the light as one who is a practitioner of righteousness. As we continue in the verse, though, it's not just if we walk in the light. It says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. So again, we already know God is light, and so Christ is in light because we know he's God. We have fellowship with one another. Now that's an interesting little variation. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, did John mess up? Because this whole time we've been talking about fellowshipping with God, fellowshipping with the light, to know God in this deep, intimate way, and now all of a sudden, here in the conclusion of this passage... He goes, if you walk in the light, though, you'll have fellowship with one another. And so some of my more studious people might be thinking, okay, wonderful. Maybe, just like Rob mentioned in his last sermon, that there was a textual variant. Maybe this is a textual variant, too, and maybe it can be read another way. Not the case. This is intentional. This is purposeful. And this is mind-boggling, if you ask me. Because once again, we've focused so much on fellowship with God and knowing God. For now, John, to transition and go, but if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. So yet, he states this for a purpose. This is no mistake. We are seeing the core or the Christian ethic come alive here. As I've said, to walk in the light, we must have fellowship with God. We have to know and be known by God to walk in the light. But the fruit 
is not more fellowship with God, but rather the fruit is fellowship with one another. God is self-sufficient. Right? He created the heavens and the earth. He made all of this. He has no needs. Stop and think about that. I have needs. You have needs. Right? It's getting later. Some of you are probably getting hungry. Right? We have needs. Some of us maybe stayed up too late last night and we're starting to get sleepy. Right? We have these needs. God doesn't have this. He never needs to be comforted. I can't give him clothes if he's cold. God is the creator. He's a sustainer of all things. In fact, Colossians says this beautifully in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What can I possibly bring to the table with my fellowship with God? I have nothing in comparison to that. Take everything I own and wouldn't, wouldn't even be a drop to who God is because, again, He is the sustainer of all things. He's the one who's even made all of these things. He knows, he knows where all the atoms are in my coat right now. Again, fathom this thing. How could I ever think to approach this God? So, of course, I can't give him anything. But, you know who does need? Are those my brothers and sisters around me? You and I. Which means that as I walk in the light, I will serve those around me. And I will desire to grow in fellowship with those around me. Because again, if we're going to talk about intimacy, how can I come alongside and help you with your needs if I don't know you in that deep way? How can I know that you're suffering in these particular cases if again you just give me that, oh yeah, everything's fine, everything's good conversation. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's here. That God requires or commands us to pay attention to those around us. Again, assuming we have fellowship with God, again, assuming we want to honor Him again, we want to walk in righteousness, do all of these things, that then means I must 
pay attention to what's going on around me and who's around me and what I can do to love them, to serve them, and to basically then honor God in the fruit of that by fulfilling his commandments. So the Christian ethic is built upon this notion that, yes, we are moved by God to then serve one another, to love one another, to have fellowship with one another. This, this idea that's popular in, in some circles of, of the Western church, that there's the, you know, this lone Christian, right? I just have my Bible, I'm good, I'm under a tree, I'm just reading by myself, I'm good, that's all I need, is just biblically false. Amen. There's, you, can't, you can't walk as a Christian, you can't even obey God without, no, without one another. I need you, you need me, we need each other. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, again, consider this reality that we are connected to one another because of Christ, uh, right? He's our shepherd. We're his flock. Again, we're in this together. We've already looked at we are children. Well, what do multiple children make up? But a family. So again, we are a family that needs to come together. Again, because of Christ. Now, that's what gets us into the concluding part of our text Back in 1 John, verse 7, it concludes with this. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is how anything I've just said makes any sense. I can't have fellowship with God without the cleansing blood of Jesus. I can't have perfect Christian fellowship with you without the, the, blend, uh, the cleansing blood of Jesus. You can't have fellowship with one another without the cleansing, the cleansing blood of Christ. Because we've already talked about darkness. We have darkness. I have darkness. My heart isn't perfect. I have sin. I have shortcomings. I have made errors. I've rejected God at times. And we also looked in the Colossians passage about how big this God is and how perfect he is and how he sustains all things. How could I even dream of going before this God with my imperfections? Whenever I stop to consider this, I always think of Isaiah in his vision scene in in Isaiah chapter 6 when he's before the throne. And all he can say is, woe is me. Just, again, think about how minuscule you are in the sight of God, how much holier God is, how much more righteous God is, and yet he's then paved a way. He's made a way that we can approach him. Because if he doesn't, it's impossible. Hebrews chapter 9. Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if 
the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled, uh, excuse me, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, when you stop and just consider the beauty now of this actual hope that we truly have in Christ, not again because of our own merit, not because of anything I have done. All I brought to the table was the sin that made it necessary for him to redeem me. And yet here he is going, okay, yes, we have this Old Testament symbol where, again, it was pointing to this future actual full fulfillment of God's promise to redeem of these bulls and goats and all this blood, all this carnage, right? But then he's going to come and take our place. Christ will walk this perfect right. He came without blemish, as our author in Hebrew says. He came without blemish. He was perfect. He was spotless. And he offers himself as the perfect atoning sacrifice. And what does it give us? It gives us an eternal redemption. So again, now we have an eternal redemption, one that lasts forever. So again, our fellowship now means it's not just a passing fellowship. Right? There's people I've met, had great friendships with, and then they move away and you sort of lose contact and it ends, you just sort of lose their contact. And yeah, you don't you just see them anymore. That's not what we're talking about. This is an eternal, for all eternity, I will have this fellowship. You will have this fellowship with God. Because of his blood, because he died and rose again and redeemed us, this is beautiful. And so for those of you who are wrestling or don't really know, I I plead, put your faith in Christ today. Turn to him. Turn to this redemptive work to want to know God. I pray that you will just want to know God. And I'll be happy. I'll be around if you want to ask questions. I'll be happy to, to answer any of if I the best of my ability to talk to you, pray with you about this. Because again, this is how meaningful this is. I want this for everyone. I want you to know Christ. I want you to be cleansed by his blood. And for those of us who are in the faith, I pray that because we understand just the depths of what Christ did for us in his atoning work, that we will then continue now to stir one another up, to continue to dive into the lives of those around us, to continue to know our brothers and sisters, and we'll just continue to abide in Christ so that he can continue his work that he's doing in us. And it's his washing Again, that gives us this fellowship. So good. So, God is light. As we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And this is all possible because we are washed in the blood of Christ. May God receive all the glory and honor. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, your righteousness, Lord, and your mercy and your grace that you show us. Lord, your love is so 
abundance and so clear in all that you've done for us as fallen sinners who need to know you. And so, Lord, be with us. Comfort us, guide our hearts, stir us up, Lord, for your good work and for your good pleasure. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Christ, for dying and redeeming and being that perfect sacrifice, taking our place. And Spirit, may you continue to lead and guide our hearts as we grow in being sanctified. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.